How many more people might be screened for prediabetes and diabetes? A new treatment for lung scarring. Does it help at all to have people in a prone position when they have COVID-19? And can you treat a heart valve using a catheter? That's what we're talking about this week on Double T Health Watch, your weekly look at the medical headlines from Texas Tech University Health Sciences Center in El Paso. I'm Elizabeth Tracy, a Baltimore-based medical journalist. And I'm Rick Lang, president of Texas Tech University Health Sciences Center in El Paso. I'm also dean of the Paul L. Foster School of Medicine. And in keeping with our normal pattern, Rick, let's start first with JAMA. This is a look at, is there any benefit of awake prone positioning on intubation in patients with COVID-19 and acute respiratory failure? Is there any benefit to flipping people on their bellies when they have severe respiratory failure and COVID-19? And this, of course, I've watched this in action. I've watched these teams of people have to come and actually flip people over onto their bellies when they're struggling to breathe. So it requires a lot of people and a lot of energy. And is there really any benefit? This study attempts to look at this critically. This is a pragmatic, unblinded, randomized clinical trial. 21 hospitals in Canada, Kuwait, Saudi Arabia, and the U.S. There were adult patients with COVID-19 who were not intubated but required oxygen or non-invasive ventilation. They had 400 patients enrolled and their primary outcome was, do we have to intubate these folks within 30 days of randomization? And then secondary outcomes, mortality at 60 days, days free from invasive mechanical ventilation or non-invasive ventilation at 30 days. And basically their mean duration of prone positioning per day was 4.8 hours. Their outcomes were that by day 30, 34% in the prone positioning group were intubated versus 40.5% of the folks in the control group. Prone positioning did not significantly reduce mortality. To me, it's sounding like maybe we should give up this practice. How about you? I guess there are two circumstances. The one is putting someone under prone position after they've been intubated. Studies have shown that in people that have moderate to severe acute respiratory distress syndrome, that actually improves their outcome. Okay, if that's true after they've been intubated, can we take people with severe COVID and prevent intubation by putting them in a prone position? And what this study shows is it's not very good for preventing intubation. And in fact, it doesn't reduce mortality in that situation. It doesn't shorten hospital stay. When someone's intubated, you can sedate them and it makes it easier. But you can imagine if you're gasping for air, you have severe COVID-19 and someone puts you on your stomach with the goal to keep you there for eight to 10 hours, it's very difficult. And that's why the most they could do is about four and a half or five hours here. This is a really well done study showing that even though we'd like for it to be helpful, it really isn't helpful. I find it curious that it is helpful in somebody who's intubated, but it's not helpful in people who aren't. There are things that it does, at least in the intubated patient, increases lung volumes, makes the pleural pressure, the pressure around the lungs, more homogenous, and it decreases shunting, that is unoxygenated blood going through the lungs. So there are a lot of benefits in that situation that probably don't accrue in someone that's awake. Well, lots of people I've talked to who've had the experience have said it's not very pleasant either. You're right, Elizabeth. Most patients don't tolerate it very well. And again, the goal here was to do this for eight to 10 hours. Very few people were able to do that because of the discomfort associated with it.
So those proning teams, they can stay in the ICU, sounds like. Yeah. Okay, which of your two would you like to talk about? So let's turn to the New England Journal of Medicine to talk about a lung condition that is fortunately rare, but it's a progressive irreversible lung disease, and it's called idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis. And Elizabeth, you know, we've been recording now for almost 19 years, and about six years ago, my dad died of this condition idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis, the scarring of the inner tissue of the lung. So it prevents the lungs from moving oxygen into the bloodstream. It makes it very difficult to breathe and it's a terrible way to die. And there are a couple of anti-fibrotic therapies that are available, but they slow the progression. They actually don't stop the progression at all. Well, one of the pathways that's responsible for scarring is called the phosphodiesterase pathway. And there's one particular subgroup called phosphodiesterase 4B. And what these investigators noted was if you inhibit that pathway, you can actually inhibit scarring. So they developed an oral agent. This can be given twice a day. And they're testing it in about 147 patients that have idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis and comparing it to individuals that either had no therapy or those that were on the standard antifibrotic agents. And what they discovered was for those individuals in whom they gave this, they were able to completely stop the decrease in lung function, what's called an FVC, the force vital capacity. That is a measure of how well one can breathe. Over the 12 weeks that these medicines were administered, there was no decline at all. Whereas in those that received placebo or those that received the current antifibrotic agent, there was a significant decline. This is a phase two trial. But this is a proof of concept, so we can take it to larger trials, test it for longer periods of time. Well, Rick, this sounds like really great news to me. What are the side effects? The major side effect is about 13 out of the 147 patients had to discontinue it, mostly from GI effects. Now, many of these patients were taking this and a current antifibrotic agent. So the question is, if you just give this as the monotherapy, will you still have that? And we won't know until we do this in a larger number of patients. Yeah, this really is good news because it's such a terrible disease. I see actually quite a few people with this in the hospital. Yes, my dad was on a study protocol trying to see if we could develop an agent six years ago that would help to arrest the disease and really unsuccessful. Let's turn now to our research letter again in JAMA. And this is taking a look at something that has the potential to expand once again the burden on what are going to largely be probably primary care physicians. Looking at prediabetes and diabetes screening eligibility and detection in adults after both the USPSTF and the recommendations of the American Diabetes Association regarding screening. Now, this is, of course, against the background of the fact that both prediabetes and type 2 diabetes are just so hugely on the upswing, starting to develop at earlier ages, increasing BMIs and obesity as major culprits here. Based on this, they have recommended lowering the starting age for diabetes screening to 35 years so that they can facilitate earlier detection. They basically looked at NHANES data from 2015 to 2020, how many more people are we going to be screening if we implement these guidelines? The USPSTF guidelines would increase screening from 36.3% to 43%. And then if we look at the ADA, the American Diabetes Association, we would end up with from just shy of 77% to just shy of 83%. It's really going to result in a tremendous number more people being screened for these things. No doubt, it's also going to result in a lot more detection. And the question is, who's going to be doing this? 
You hit the nail on the head. I mean, as you mentioned, it increases the screening eligibility about six to seven percentage points. That results in about a four to six percent increase in pre-diabetes detection and about a two to nine percent increase in undiagnosed diabetes detection. You're talking about a huge number of people in the population because it's age over 35 plus a BMI more than 25 and one or more risk factors. So you're talking about most of the U.S. population and that's got to fall on somebody, not only the primary care physician, but it may even be cost prohibitive as well. Since we do know what the risk factors are, again, the BMI and sedentary behavior, and probably also dietary choices, I think maybe it's more important to emphasize prevention rather than detection. And I totally agree with that. I think screening more than 80% of the asymptomatic people in the U.S. is just going to be prohibitive. We not only want to prevent it, but if somebody develops that, we're going to make the same recommendations. So why wait until you have the disease? Let's get ahead of it and let's prevent it. I totally agree. Now, staying in JAMA, looking at aortic valve stenosis treatment. So aortic valve stenosis, the major valve between the left ventricle of the heart that pumps blood to the body, when that valve begins to age or calcify, it narrows and it prevents blood from entering the body. In the past, the treatment for that was to have surgery. So you could put in a new valve, sometimes a mechanical valve, sometimes a tissue valve. Since about 2002, we've had the ability to put in valves with the use of a catheter. That's called transcatheter aortic valve implantation. Is it as good as doing a surgical replacement? Transcatheter valves were initially used in the highest risk patients and then the moderately risk. And now you say, well, what about people that have a much lower risk? This study examined individuals over the age of 70 that had aortic stenosis at 34 different centers in the United Kingdom. There were 913 of those, and they randomized them to either having surgical valve treatment or doing this transcatheter aortic valve implantation. At one year, what was the mortality? Those that had the surgery, the mortality was 6.6%, and those that had the transcatheter valve placement, 4.6%. Statistically, they were similar. There are some differences in those that had the transcatheter aortic valve replacement. They had a shorter hospital stay and they had fewer bleeding events, but those that had the transcatheter valve on the other side were more likely to require a pacemaker and more likely to have a leaky valve afterwards. This was in older individuals. We know that tissue valves typically last about 10 years. So if you're 70 or 80, and especially if you're considered to be a high surgical risk, this is a great alternative. My guess is that you would probably say that for a very exceptional 70-year-old who's in really good shape outside of this particular issue, these are things that ought to be weighed also. It is. What about the 70-year-old that plans to live to be in their mid-90s and is otherwise healthy? Well, that's when you sit down with the patient and say, okay, here are the two options. Only time will tell. So as we follow these patients over a long period of time, this may be the only valve they ever need. And that tissue valve can be delivered with a catheter than with surgery. Mm. It sounds like it could be quite a complicated decision for some. It can be, but I think we can simplify it. Studies like this help take some of the complication out and it tells us, at least to the short-term outcomes, we also have to admit to the patient there are things we don't know, things like the durability of the valve. And I think we need to be very honest about it and let the patient be a part of that decision-making process. Okay, with lots of education. That's a look at this week's medical headlines from Texas Tech. I'm Elizabeth Tracy. And I'm Rick Lyon. Y'all listen up and make healthy choices.